0: Hey everybody, happy new year. Welcome to the first of our next series of OIG roundtables. Hope you all had a good new year and we're off to a great start. Jason is working on a client deliverable so he will not be here with us, but I've got most of the team. I've got Wade McFall, retired assistant special agent charge from the LA field office and a manager on our SIU team. And Matt Kachansky one of our senior managers on our SIU team, retired uh, senior leader from hhs and the retired Northeast UPIC director. Uh, I am uh, in the new year, still Eric Rubenstein. And of course I got sick during the holidays, so I am just getting over a sinus infection and cough. So <clears throat> I apologize for, uh, for my voice, but so we want to start the year off, um, you know, the topic that will never go away is always going to be provider education and provider education, generally speaking, provider education can be an internal process, right? Providers can set up their own cadence of training and education. By the way, OIG, as everybody should know, came out with some updated guidance, Uh, OIG model compliance guidance. A lot of it was a reiteration, but you know, self audit training and education is part of any good robust training, uh, education and compliance plan. Providers should be doing it. Uh, You should be part of that cadence, but you know, on the SIU side, Uh, Training and education is a super important piece of that puzzle, Um, but of course, there's always the push-pull and the rub. And so, Matt, I want to start with you because, you know, one of the things that we were just talking about the other day, and we're going to continue this conversation here in our podcast, is this balance in the payment integrity or program integrity um, space, the need to provide education as a positive Right, because the goal is to educate providers to get them to bill properly to pay them. Um, But that also has a lot of provider abrasion, whether we're talking about on the CMS side, the TPE targeted uh, and education, or we're talking about general provider education as part of, um, you know, an outreach program or something along those lines. And so there is this fine balance that the PI departments of SIUs need to find to be able to keep provider abrasion low but keep compliance
1: uh, with policies high, absolutely. That, that that balance is is ultimately important. And you got to think about it in the in the context of program integrity and how it's viewed in the greater community, whether that be the provider, of the community, congressional interest. It's on a pendulum. I mean, you, you know, it could be the you know it could be the the apple of the eye of of Congress in one point, and then all of a sudden. It swings to where how dare we in program integrity take advantage of these poor providers that are just trying to do their job. And usually it's when something or some entity goes beyond what they should do in terms of criminalizing a technical issue or doing something that goes beyond reasonable which causes complaints to go to the AMA the American Hospital Association congress that starts a campaign against the whole program integrity effort and that pendulum swings now where education fits in is as part of the continuum of 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 remedies that a program integrity entity can can do from you know, education all the way to revocation termination criminal referral education is the one that is seen as positive by everybody right the provider community enjoys learning from the insurance companies on how do i stay out of trouble here's how i'm supposed to document here's how i'm supposed to bill i think they they welcome that both in a general sense and even in an individual sense when You know, we might have a case on someone. We see that it's a first time offense, maybe a mistake. Let's just educate this person so they don't do it again. So they stay a provider in good standing and we don't abrade them by taking action that is probably not necessary at that point.
0: So, you know, you brought up something which we talked about right before the holidays. We talked about technical violations and the problems mm-hmm. of technical violations. And so, if you didn't catch that podcast from a few weeks ago, it's on our website, it's or our YouTube channel, it's in Spotify, but there's a, we have a whole discussion about technical violations and the fact that you want to correct some of these technical violations, sometimes it's through education and, and training. And, you know, you brought up something about these congressional inquiries. And, you know, when I was at the OIG, I had a couple of cases that involved congressional inquiries, and they are they're not pleasant. Um, You're trying to do your investigation, but oftentimes you know you've got a a Congress uh, Congress member you know, asking constantly about things and, you know, there's, you're not sharing a lot of information, but they create a level of sensitivities in, internally that require a lot of extra work and documentation. So yeah, you, you know, you want to stay on that, on that path where you're providing that proper education, but not making it so burdensome that it's not a positive uh, or in, in the right step. Um, so wait, I want to talk to you now because, you know, one of the things that Matt brought up was this whole premise of, are they repeat offenders or you've educated them, you've trained them. You know, We deal a lot uh, here at Advise, you're dealing with it on your contract, these prepay, these post-pay reviews, right? So generally speaking, um, in the healthcare world, we're a pay and chase environment. So we're reactive, which means post-pay. And prepay is because there's been some pattern of behavior that has led you to be in a prepay. And I think you know, whether people want to uh, acknowledge this or not, prepay and postpay reviews are forms of education and training right and they have value so let's talk about that
2: yeah it's definitely um you know I, I, a lot of times I'll explain it to providers once they first get their letter that they're on a prepayment review they don't really know what's going on they have questions on how to proceed um you know um with submitting the claims and what's going to happen to them so basically if you just tell them that look all the claims for usually it's for a specific CPT code. Anytime you submit one a claim with this code, it's going to be denied. You have to send in supporting documentation and then one of our CPCs who's trained way more than I am in this will review it and make a determination if the code is correct or if perhaps there's a better code a more appropriate code that, that should be used. And this goes on for you know, a couple months usually could be a couple weeks depending on the volume, but we, we look for a pattern and then we we do a couple things. We educate them is like this is you're using this code, but this other code is more appropriate. So you should switch to that code. And by the way, because you've been doing it using the wrong code, we go back usually like 18 months and ask for that percentage. If it's a if it's a 50 percent overpayment, we're going to go back 18 months and get that. 50% of what was paid during that time period. But the, the best part about these really is it's for cases down the road or investigations down the road, uh, because once they've been educated, they can't come back and do the same thing. You know, if we told them go to this other code and they just switch back to the incorrect code, that's not going to fly. So it it helps for. These investigations down the road, it also helps more so for, you know, if, if a, an investigation is going to go criminally. If we've educated them, one of the hardest things on criminal cases is to show knowledge and intent. And if we have, you know, that they went to some training or we educated them based on prepayment review, they can't really say, well, you know, I didn't I didn't know I was doing it wrong. I, there's one case that I worked just recently where it was a about a half a million dollar overpayment for a home health agency that was using unlicensed AIDS. We're telling him this money has to be paid back, and he's not. You know, he thinks we're trying to put him out of business. But he had, he had the same investigation like two years ago with the same outcome. He's an unlicensed, age, so you can't, you can't come back and say I didn't know I, I couldn't do this. So that's that's probably equally as important in the training process as is educating them. It's that now that they've been educated, they can't go back to their old behavior.
1: Yeah, right. when we, so go ahead, Matt. As you say, when we were with the UPIC, you know, we were mandated, anytime there was a, a prepay or a postpay, whether orally or in writing, usually both, we would educate the provider claim by claim as to what, why those determinations were made, and what they needed to do to improve their documentation or, or explain coverage issues, whatever it might have been, so that there was no Next time, you know, oh, I didn't know anymore. That that knowledge is there now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and Wade, you you know, one of the one of the points you brought up, which is good, is you brought up the fact that there's auditors who are working with the investigators, right? So we've talked about this so many times in our podcasts about the fact that payment integrity is a continuum and that the teams can't be siloed. You've got to have this crossover, you've got to have your auditors, your RN auditors, your CPC level documentation auditors embedded to be able to help with that training and education to say, look, if you did it this way, you would have been paid. You're doing it this way. You can't be paid. And the the big one that always comes to mind. Is when we see cases in which providers are relying upon a manufacturer's suggested guidance for billing and coding, right? And you know, we were talking about this just before I mean, it drives me crazy. I posted uh, a couple of weeks ago on LinkedIn. I posted two different articles or um, press releases where that was an issue, where a uh, a provider got dinged civilly for. Billing for a code based upon the guidance from a manufacturer. I mean, how many times do you have to tell people that the the arbiter of what you can bill or code is not right? is not the manufacturer, the yeah. device
1: you know, provider. <clears throat> Have uh, you ever I, looked at any of that literature that the device manufacturers put out? Because I have. And it is direct as to bill it this way to maximize your revenue. If you bill it another way, it's not going to be covered. They they explain to the provider exactly how to bill it and how to make the most money from the device. Right. And every case we we had at the UPIC and at the OIG. That advice was wrong. Well, I I had one
2: just like two or three weeks ago. I had one where it was something to do with the audiology tests, hearing tests, and they're billing it incorrectly. The CPCs have gone through and they said they're using the wrong code. And so I talked to the provider and, and the provider was like, hey, I got you. No, it's correct because that's what the manufacturer told me. This was like four years ago and they told me this is how to do it. And I said, they're wrong. The CPC is going to be right, and you know we can have this conversation. But don't rely on what the manufacturers telling because they're not. That's not part of their job. Right. The and the whole premise
0: <laughs> of oh no no I got gotcha. you, yeah. I have this document. But you know Matt, to your point, you know the device manufacturers. It's all about selling the piece of equipment. So right. right? So they're always going to come in and say, you're going to be able to get. know bill it for this much within six months you're gonna get your the machine will be paying for itself and all this other stuff and you know before you know it you you know you run into these situations where you're relying upon the coding and billing guidance of someone who's you know not the final arbiter of of what that is right and so you've got these instances where you know how much outreach and, and, and I think this gets in that training and education is how much outreach is the payer community really responsible for? How much outreach is the OIG really responsible for when the provider community wants maybe to ignore that, right? And I think that this is where that line gets drawn between fraud and the waste and abuse, right? So I know I say it, we all say it, it providers that are intent on committing fraud do not care about what Wade McFall, Eric Rubenstein. Makachansky and Jason Osborne have to say they don't care about what the OIG has to say they don't care because the fraudsters are are looking to you know get their money and run. It's the waste and abuse people um, that I think you know we we potentially have that that opportunity. But wait, I want to go back because you know a big piece of the of you know that case that you were talking about was the provider was previously admonished, yeah. financially held responsible by making an overpayment, and educated about what not to do. And, you know, we were just talking about this, is that, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same behavior and expecting a different outcome each time. And it's like, how do you think that you're going to have a different outcome? Mm -hmm. And if anything, you're now putting yourself into the world of intent, which is now getting you out of the waste and
2: abuse. Yeah. I I think in cases like that, too, there's a certain amount of negotiation. It's not always a dollar for dollar uh, return that we're going to get back. It's You know, anywhere, depending on the circumstances of the case, it might be 50 cents on the dollar, 75 cents on the dollar. But when you've already been through this a couple of years ago and were educated and go back to do the same thing, I I think it's a a good argument to say we're not going to settle for 60 or 70 cents on the dollar. It's like you you know what you're supposed to do or you should have known. So we need we need it all back. We need dollar for dollar back because we're educated on it. Right. You know, the interesting
0: premise is, you know, when we were working in our last careers, and for Matt, it was two careers ago, um, provider abrasion wasn't a thing for us, right? As an OIG agent, you know, I would always say, if you stole a dollar, I want two. right? Provider abrasion wasn't a factor in the payer community. And, you know, when you've got payers who have large contracts with groups and this and that, and that the abrasions are real things. So Matt, you know, as we kind of wrap up, I want to, you know, kind of get the last word from you is how do you work to create what is a reasonable balance in provider abrasion and specifically when a provider gets a request for records do you request 100 records in a statistical sample do you collect do you look at a probe sample do you like how do you negate the mission of payment integrity? Provider abrasion. I mean, how do you yeah. negate the
1: provider abrasion in the mission? It Well, it starts with uh, identifying the providers that need to be looked at. You know, it's going to the data analytics to make sure that you are not bothering providers that don't need to be bothered. You, you are going to the ones that, provi- that are, you know, that are the most, at, putting the programs at the most risk. And then It's based on their history at that point, right? If they have no program integrity history at that point, you probably do a small probe, 20 to 40 claims according to the PIM. Take a look at those results and maybe just do an education at that point. And then go back six months later and see did they change their pattern? If not, you ratchet it up a little bit, a larger probe or perhaps an SVRS with an overpayment. And and that's how you do it. You you use that continuum of remedies, in accordance with what the facts of each individual case are that are in front of you. That's the only way to keep that balance. But the starting line is, you know, don't cast your net so wide that you're bringing in providers that don't need to be brought into this kind of program integrity net. That's the start of it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's fun. It's funny when I have conversations with providers, and you know, and even law firms and there's people in our space and they talk about oh i was selected you know provider a was selected for a random audit by the u-pick and i always say there's really nothing everything is targeted you the cream rose to the top for a reason um you know i try to explain to people and wade you know this from having supervised these cases for years nobody has time (laughs) for a fishing expedition nobody has time to you know do a a random you know review right I mean there's just like these things don't
1: exist I'm going to look at this guy because they're the biggest yeah that's that doesn't happen it
0: just yeah I mean it's just you know the day is the day is too full to be able to say you know you've got a there's there's a there's enough stuff out there that's problematic that taking a non-empirical look right like some sort of casting a net you know, you're not just going out and shooting fish in a barrel. There's got to be something, you know, behind it. Um, and I think, look, I, it amazes me that on the payer side, the commercial payer side, that um, TPE targeted proven education isn't more widely used um, because it really can be a positive tool because it really is intended to be an educational tool. Um, but it is, it is time consuming. It is costly. But you know, at the end of the day. Are you is your is the payment integrity group's function to get providers to bill properly? And I think that's ultimately the answer is, you know, good policies, sound principles behind your auditing, and getting providers educated and trained the proper way. So, you know, I think there's there's the TPE piece is an important piece from a commercial perspective as well as what you know, constantly CMS is doing. So, we could talk about education. I mean, it's just incessant because there's always a need to talk about it from the provider side, from the payer side, um, there's really, I think a lot of, there's a lot of commonalities. And I think that the each side doesn't really see that as well as it should be seen. So, you know, to, to be continued, I suppose. So as always, it's a lot of fun. Jason misses out on all the good talks we have. It was his idea. <laughs> and it was, it was his, this was his idea. So as always, listen, Happy New Year, everybody! It's great to have everybody back. Uh, it's time to get back to work. The holidays are over. Let's put the let's put our noses to the grindstone. Any topics that uh, anybody out there thinks we should be addressing or talking about, like, let us know. If you're not getting our newsletter, sign up for it. Hello at adviseadvizehealth.com. You can get our newsletter. We've got a whole bunch of LinkedIn Lives that are scheduled. Uh, for those of you that didn't see it, our general counsel Julie Janeway and I. Uh, just posted a very brief um, webinar, uh, recorded webinar about something called the CTA, and um, it is essentially—it's uh, essentially a brand new law that took effect, and you should be conversant in it and understand it. Uh, Julie and I did a very quick review of it, um, and it's a—it's the new Transparency Act. Um, And it's to ensure that there are no shell companies out there transacting business. And it's an important piece of the puzzle. So you can can grab that off of LinkedIn and YouTube and our website. I'll see you guys next week. As always, it's a lot of fun talking to you guys. Thanks again for tuning into the podcast. And we'll see everybody on the next OIG Roundtable.
2: Thank you, everybody. Thank Thank you.